This entire season of Retronauts is fully funded by listeners like you thanks to Patreon. If you'd like to find out how you can help and get episodes a week in advance, head on over to patreon.com slash retronauts. Thanks and enjoy the show. This week on Retronauts, we discover the secret of Monkey Island. Hello, everybody. This is Bob Mackey with a brand new episode of Retronauts, and the topic today is the secret of Monkey Island games. And before I introduce anyone else, I do want to let you know who is our very special guest for today. And uh, can you introduce yourself, please? Uh, yeah, I'm Ron Gilbert, and I was the uh, creator and designer of Monkey Island. Ron Gilbert, a uh, very important dude in terms of the history of adventure games and the current history of adventure games, I would say. Um, and so who else is here today? Uh, Jeremy Parrish, the jackass who doesn't play PC or adventure games oh, and is dead weight here today. You're not going to be pointing. Sorry, Ron, nothing personal. Jeremy's against pointing and clicking, I, I, am. I guess. It's rude. It's <laughs> so rude. You can just point and when gesture. When you point, you have four fingers pointing back at you. I guess. Wow. I've never heard that one. <laughs> and who else is here? Or three. Jeremy Parrish, the man who coined Metroidvania as a classic gamer, has is not a point and click adventure guy. This news shocks me. And speaking... I like shooting things? I don't know. (laughs) I'm Ryan McCaffrey. You may know me from IGN and my Xbox podcast, Podcast Unlocked, uh, and other longtime video game things. And thank you so much for coming in, Ryan. Happy to be here. It's kind of a last-minute thing. So uh, we only have an hour with Ron, so I want to make the most of it. And Ron was kind enough to come in for our Maniac Mansion 25th anniversary show back in 2012. And now we're at the 25th anniversary of Monkey Island. And Ron is looking scared at that fact. No, I was just thinking when you said back in 2012, oh. it just makes it seem like so long and ago. And think about it. How, how young were we back then? I mean, yeah. Think of the state of apps and, you know, social media. Who knows? But um, so, Ron, I, I want to get into this really quick. And I want to ask about um, the concept for Monkey Island where it seems like it was this um, just a, a, an amalgam of different ideas. Like we have the uh, novel on Stranger Tides. We have sort of the Pirates of the Caribbean. And I think Monkey Island does a great job of making fun of like marketing and merchandising and things like that. Like can you tell me and all of us just where the idea came from? And we should mention uh, for the uninitiated, Monkey Island, the secret of Monkey Island was a 1990 adventure game, very beloved. And there's a reason we're doing an episode about this um, this this game. So – yeah, the the genesis of the idea uh, goes kind of goes back to right after I finished working on Maniac Mansion, and uh, at that at the time, you know, our main competitor was Sierra Online. It was making King's Quest and Legends of Larry and you know Space Quest and games like that, and they were uh, always just kicking our ass in sales. They were always doing better than we were, and it was very, very frustrating uh, for us to see. And so, I wanted to do—I wanted to do a game that had like market potential. You know, that's that was like my main thing. I wanted to do a game that sells well, and I started looking at themes. You know, themes that were selling well in games, and a lot like today, you know, fantasy did really well, and you see that with King's Quest, and you know. Um, a hundred other games are out at the time. But I really didn't like fantasy. You know, it's not a genre that I really enjoy. I don't, I mean, I don't really like fantasy movies. I, I don't read fantasy books at all. I love science fiction. I do not read fantasy. And so I wanted to come up with a game that I thought could kind of capture, you know, what I looked at fantasy being, but without being fantasy. And one of the things I thought of was 
pirates because they seem to do a lot of the same things. You know, they're roughly you know, maybe set in that same you know fantasy world. It doesn't it doesn't really take place in any time, but it's like you know kind of same period, and they jump right. around with swords and they wear tights There's and all this kind of, of stuff. You know, with voodoo and yeah, yeah. So it it just you know it seemed to work really well for me, and I just I wrote just a whole lot of these little one page stories. You know, about pirates and, you know, different lead characters and different ideas. And, you know, nothing was really gelling with me on that. And that's what I read uh, the On Stranger Tides book. And there was something about that because that book had uh, voodoo in it. It had, you know, a pirate who was, you know, Blackbeard and it was about a lot of voodoo stuff. And it had a great main character that was this kind of fish out of, out of water story, which always works really well for adventure games. Mm-hmm. When the main character in an adventure game doesn't really understand what's going on, uh, it works because the player doesn't understand what's going on either. And, and you and the character can kind of learn together and be confused together. And, uh, you know, it seems to work. So that's um, – you know, that was kind of the genesis of that. And then there was the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, which, you know, I absolutely adored. I just liked the feel of it, right? There really wasn't anything in the ride itself that was interesting. But it's just that feel, you know, it starts out and I guess it's kind of, you know, the Louisiana Bayou and there's the little, you know, shack and there's all the blue and the crickets and everything. And I just wanted to get that feel. And yeah, you like- really see that at the beginning of the game, you know, when you first walk down onto the dock and there's, you know, Scab Island down there. Yeah, it does feel like one of those dark rides where everything is just shrouded in darkness. There's just like an, it's not quite eerie, but it's just like there's an air of mystery around it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a nice mood to it. Were there what Ron, I'm curious what other names were on the whiteboard because you landed on Guybrush Threepwood for your main character, which is of course a funny, unusual name. Did you guys just start just jotting down the goofiest things you could think of? No, no. I, I think the reason that um, you know Guybrush became the name is because there were no names on the whiteboard. The you know, we we had kind of called you know, the the character just the guy <laughs> and. You know, all through a lot of the you know early uh, design stuff, I, I just called him the guy. Right. We, did, we didn't have a name for him at all. And uh, Steve Purcell, who was the artist on um, on Monkey One and Monkey Two, uh, he did a lot of the animation. He was he was he would do these little character concepts uh, for Guybrush, and uh, he was all doing them in D Paint, which was kind of about the only graphics editor we had back then. And in D Paint, when you when you grab a little section of the image, uh, it's called a brush. Hmm. And he would take these little things and he would save them off, and he would just call them Guybrush would be the name <laughs> of the file. So it was a right? Lane Girl Brush? No, oh, because okay. that was the only one we were really. You know, we, we kind of. I don't think we had Lane's name yet, but we had we had guy. You know. We just, he was Guy, and then Steve Purcell would take these files off called the Guy Brush. <laughs> mm. And I just saw these so many times. I thought, you know, that's kind of a good name. <laughs> I love that. Let's, let's just go with that. Hmm. I do want to talk about a uh, very famous, even today, at least amongst adventure game fans, the Your Why Adventure Games Suck article. And I reread that today, and you posted it in 2004 for the second time. Maybe you posted it since then, but you said uh, in that article, Adventure Games Are Dead. Read the Old Man Murray article that we all know about. I'll link to that in the blog post for this episode. But, um, like, I want to know, has that been your guide, uh, or have you deviated from that? Because reading it again, and and it's really interesting to read. I mean, the concepts are so uh, about logic that... They do not age, I think. I mean, when I, when I play an adventure game today, I still look at those rules and see how they're broken. But have you, have you deviated from those rules at all? You said even in the blog post, like, I, I have gotten away from some of these. I'm a little looser with some of these. I'm just curious, like, how do you, what do you think of that, like, document 26 years later? 
I'm really happy with the document. You know, I wrote it, I think, in 1989 was the date on it. It predates Monkey Island. And it it was, you know, there's like 15 different rules of an adventure game in there. And I, I think most of them really do hold up. And in, in some ways, Monkey Island 1 was really a test of those rules. Mm. You know, I, I had those rules and the design of Monkey Island very, very rigidly and religiously adhered to those rules. When Monkey Island 2 came around, I mean, some of it was relaxed a little bit. I, th- I still think the rules are very, very sound. Mm. It's like, I, but I think there's a little more leeway, you know, that you have to give. Like sometimes it's okay to break this rule. Sometimes it's okay to, you know, break that rule. Mm. But generally, I mean, even with Thimbleweed Park, which I'm doing today, I still follow those rules. There is no puzzle or situation in Thimbleweed Park that does not break any of those rules. It's funny because that sort of underlines a kind of friendliness that seemed antithetical to adventure games, which you point out. And um, I I went to Brian Moriarty's Loom panel at GDC, and he was showing off how in Space Quest V, they made fun of his game. You can find it in a bargain bin, uh, like a parody of Loom, and it's like, you can't die. Everything is pointed out to you. It's so easy. I mean, did you suffer criticism because of Monkey Island's... It's not an easy game by any means, but it's not a mean game. I think that it defied expectations in that way. No, I don't remember any criticism mm, of the game okay. because you couldn't die at all. And, right. and I think it was because the game was a hard game. It wasn't an easy game. and But it wasn't hard because it was frustrating. It wasn't hard because you, you died every time you did something wrong. It was just hard because the puzzles were hard. Right. And I think people respected that. And, and you really can see that um, – People really do respond to that no the no death thing and that and and you know Lucasfilm really became famous for that no death in adventure games and it was because people responded to it so well. Hmm. I also wanted to ask about um, doing some research about Monkey Island. I heard originally it was a more serious game. Is that true? And um, or was it always conceived as a comedy? Or did the comedy just come naturally through the the scenario with uh, writing it with Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman? No, it was always a comedy. Okay. It was a comedy from 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 day one. I don't think I could ever do a serious <laughs> game. Uh, you know, g- games can sometimes have or stories you know can have a serious like underpinning to them. And you know, I do tend to design things where that core story is funny. I don't I don't like to design things that are just like farces from the beginning. And a great example I always use is Ghostbusters. Right at the, at the core of that story is a serious story. Mm-hmm. Right about you demons and the Hellgate and all this stuff, but they just layer all this comedy on top of it. And, and I, I tend to do games the same way, that at the core there's a serious story, but that it's, you know, there's all this comedy you know, laid on top of it. And Monkey Island was always conceived to be that way. Do you have a favorite, Ron, of, the, uh, of LucasArts' other adventure games that aren't yours? Any of the other ones in the stable from over the years? I, you know, I, I enjoyed Loom quite a bit. I think, I think Loom was one of those games that was you know, 30 years ahead of its time in a lot of ways mm-hmm. in, in that it was, it was simple. Right. It wasn't particularly hard. And you look at, uh, you know, a lot of the casual games today and a lot of games today are just much, much, much simpler. And, you know, for that, I really, you know, I really respect that. And Brian had a great vision for that game, which, you know, he was just like laser focused, you know, on that vision. And I had a lot of respect, you know, for that. So I, you know, I, I really did. I really did like, um, I really did. Like Good old Blue. Bob and Threadbare. Yeah. <laughs> Another great name.
So uh, when you talked to me about Maniac Mansion, you told me the game turned out the way it was because, um, and these are your words, you said, I didn't know what I was doing or we didn't know what we were doing. Um, in in the timeline of your, your career, like how do you look back on, on Monkey Island? Do you still see yourself as an experienced or did you think by this point, like after working on a few adventure games, you sort of understood uh, what the limits were and what you could and couldn't do and maybe what something that was too ambitious for a game? Well, you're always learning, right? You never... I don't think you ever really know all that stuff. And, and I think you shouldn't. I think if you, if you are constantly making mistakes and you are pushing, you know, boundaries and you're pushing your knowledge and, you know, what everybody thinks, then, you know, you're making mistakes, but I think you're doing interesting things. But Monkey Island was this game where things kind of clicked for me with adventure games because mm-hmm. I had done uh, Maniac Mansion. Uh, I didn't work directly on Zach McCracken, but I was you know involved in it because I was doing you know the engine, and then we had done the uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade game, which were these kind of evolutions, you know, these evolutions uh, up, and and with Monkey Island, and and it was really that article, you know, the Why Adventure Games Suck, that everything just kind of clicked together for me, hmm. and that's I, I think that's the point that I kind of felt like you know what I get this, I get how to design these things now, and it became. It became much much more of a process at, at that point about creating interesting worlds and interesting stories and interesting characters to layer on top of this this puzzle structure, which I, I felt like I understood. Yeah, I you just know. super appreciate that, Rana. You're a guy that is because a lot of artists, whether it be they musicians, game designers, uh, movie stars, whomever, uh, don't like to talk about their old things. They're always, they're on to their new thing, which is understandable in many ways, but I appreciate that you and, and John Romero is a guy I've spoken to is like this too, that you're, you're happy to, to reflect back on Monkey Island even now 25 years later. Is, are there any points where you ever just get sick of being asked about it? Or is it one of those things where you're happy that, boy, I made a thing that people still want to ask me about 25 years later. I'm tired of people asking me what the secret of Monkey Island is. <laughs> well, I, I purposely made a, made a point to not do that. <laughs> Thank you. I yeah. appreciate don't, that. Don't make yeah. him angry. We're in a small room. He could <laughs> kill us all and no one would find out. I know you know, but you're not going to tell anybody. <laughs> I... You know, I love I love talking about that stuff. You know, I love I love talking about Maniac Mansion and Monkey Island, and you know, even that you know all of the Humongous Entertainment games that I did, sure. I and mean, all that stuff. I I do love talking about it. So it's a lot of fun to talk about you, that you stuff. Yeah, more or less, I would say, invented edutainment as a. So, is that fair to well, say? So, I mean, well, I, I think the attainment part of it probably. <laughs> I mean, I played edutainment games, uh, and I'm sure if I was 10 years younger, I'd have nostalgia for your humongous entertainment games. But I, th- I think that's true. Like, I, I know people that are younger than me that talk about. Um, is it Freddy the Fish? Yeah, Freddy yeah, the Fish. Th- th- that series in particular, like, is like huge, and like, I, I wasn't even aware of it because I was a teenager, and you know, probably playing Doom and like Sam and Max and things like that. Yeah, nothing makes me feel older than having you know a 24 year old. <laughs> come up to you and tell you that they loved Pup Putter Pajama Sam oh, when man. they were a little kid. Yeah. You know, there's just nothing makes me feel I'm older sure. than and that. It, and if you have nostalgia for these games, let us know because I'm really interested in, in that perspective because I, those games were not for me, obviously. I'm just curious as to someone who grew up with them. Uh, Jeremy, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah. Um, speaking as kind of an outsider to the, the genre, uh, you mentioned that you know, you're really proud of the fact that um, Secret of Monkey Island was hard without being mean. 
But I, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about finding that balance and, you know, was there anything you could look to before Monkey Island as an example of a game that did that right instead of a game that was just, you know, like you're dead arbitrarily because that's what adventure games do. Like that, that, that concept of balance is really interesting to me. Yeah, that is one of the hardest parts and, and that, that balance about whether it's a good puzzle or a bad puzzle or the puzzle's too hard or too easy. That's where the whole thing is just an art form and not a science. You know, you can boil down uh, adventure game design and puzzles to design, you know, to this level of science. And, you know, things like the puzzle dependency charts, which, uh, you know, I first started using with Monkey Allen, which I still use today, are kind of the science part of it. It's like understanding that dependency between those puzzles. But understanding if puzzles are easy or hard, I, you know, people ask me a lot, well, how do you know? And I don't. I have no idea mm-hmm. whether the puzzle is too hard or too easy. Well, I just I just, I just, just do it and I start playing it and I just kind of feel it and it either feels too hard or it feels too easy. That's what an artist does. And people forget that uh, – Monkey Island had an easy mode. You could select that. Well, Monkey Island, Monkey Island 2. Yeah. Apologies. Okay, so you added that for 2, but that was a thing that was there if mm-hmm. you wanted it. And on the box it said it was for game reviewers, which yes. I thought was cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was our that was our little deal. Yeah, I, I like jokes on the box back in the day. Like, you don't see that anymore. Yeah, so funny milk comes out your nose. <laughs> So I do want to I do want to talk about uh, the games themselves, and I, I want to start with obviously Secret of Monkey Island came out in October 1990. Uh, it was you, uh, Dave Grossman, and Tim Schafer who were the leads on um, They the Tentacle, but they also worked on uh, the sequel. And one of the things I wanted to know is this felt like uh, technology was finally moving forward um, for computer games, and I'm just curious as to how much did these advances. Uh, contribute to game design because we had scaling sprites now and music and things like that. Did you think of uh, design in terms of technology when you were making these games and what no, was happening? Not really. Okay. Not in those games. I mean, technology was moving forward, but I think it was moving forward very slowly. Mm. You know, we weren't making these leaps and bounds uh, in technology back then. And that that really didn't happen until graphics cards showed up because everything else was still just kind of driving pixels, you know, to this uh, very slow you know, EGA card that you had in your machine or VGA right. card. So we didn't, you know, we, we did a lot of, um, you know, a lot of refinements, things like, you know, the scaling and, you know, we did better color cycling and stuff like that. But I, I don't think it was ever a, a technology race at all back mm-hmm. then for those games. So, you know, things like the music, you know, the IMU system was really neat. But I don't know that it, it affected the core design of the games okay. in any way, though. Yeah. So... I also wanted to know, like, how would you compare the development process between this and some earlier games like uh, Last Crusade or Maniac Mansion? Like, what was the development cycle like for a game like Monkey Island? I I assume at this point you were still not being touched by marketing, or maybe you were. I'm just curious about that because you told me earlier that marketing left you guys alone for a a long time at LucasArts. Yeah, they – my entire duration I was there, which was through the end of Monkey Island 2, marketing never did anything but support us. Hmm. So, you know, we would come up with the games and then they would look at the games and they would ask themselves, well, how do we sell this? You know, as opposed to a lot of the way it works right now, marketing comes up with, you know, an idea for a game or a genre and then it's like, okay, you guys go build this. And and it was and it was the opposite. And and it is, you know, it is the way that stuff works. You know, I think development and marketing should really work together, you know, on those things. And and they did a, you know, they always did a great job of that stuff. But I guess to answer your question, you know, Maniac Mansion – 
uh, was the first game that Lucasfilm had ever published. The games before that, uh, Rescue on Fractalus and Cronus Rift and Ball Blazer and all those, th- those were published um, by Atari. Mm. And uh, Maniac Mansion was actually originally going to be published by Activision. And we had done a – I'm not sure if we'd actually signed the deal or we'd kind of worked all the way through the process for the deal. But for whatever reason, I don't understand whether um, you know Lucasfilm backed out of it or Activision backed out of it. But for some reason, that whole deal fell apart. And so then Lucasfilm decided, you know what, this this is th- we should do our we should become a publisher, an actual publisher of these games. So Maniac Mansion was the first game that that happened on. So we were really kind of feeling our way through that whole that whole process. And you know, like I've written about and you know uh, mentioned a lot of times, the design of Maniac Mansion, the whole project was kind of just a big you know. Cluster, yeah, and you can swear it's cool. Clusterfuck. I'm go. just going to say it. Uh, it because you know Gary and I didn't really know what we were doing. We'd never designed an adventure game before. We didn't even know that Maniac Mansion was going to be an adventure game when mm. we first started. Right? We just kind of started in on this thing, and it was late. You know, it took a couple of years to build it, and, and it was you know it was kind of a mess. You know, in a, in a lot of ways, which which I think really leads to some of its charm. Right? Is just because it was just a couple of people who didn't know what they were doing, just trying to throw this thing together. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after that, you know, things got a little more serious. You know, we, we started budgeting games and we started planning the games and we actually had producers, you know, uh, Last Crusade had an actual producer on mm-hmm. it. And there were things like that that were things got a little more official and a little more formal uh, with the games with the games after that. Well, what's cool, most people don't even realize Maniac Mansion is getting re-released this year or sometime soon because just down the street from us, Double Fine is doing Day of the Tentacle Special Edition. And if they keep it completely uh. intact, the original Maniac Mansion is entirely playable within Day of the Tentacle. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the original. It wasn't the PC platforms, but I don't know. So hopefully mm. it will still be there. Yeah, I have we'll no have to ask idea. Tim next time we see yeah. him. I want to know that too. So uh, in Monkey Island, it feels like it's the first LucasArts adventure game with a real focus on dialogue. And um, and you told me before, and you've said in interviews, like, this is a chance for you to write, like, a bunch of jokes. And I'm curious because um, you can play Guybrush in many different ways. And I, I don't know if I've, – I've never been able to figure this out. Did you have, like, a specific interpretation of the character? Or did you want players to play Guybrush however they wanted? Because later down the road with voice acting, he would have a much more defined personality that couldn't be done um, in the in the world without voice acting. So – I'm just curious, do you have a vision of Guybrush in your head or is it just like whatever you think is funny or player? It's a little bit of that. Mm. Uh, you know, Last Crusade was the first game that used the dialogue system and we were just kind of feeling our way around it at that point. We didn't really know yeah, how to use it in a lot of ways. It, it was, it, it was, you know, you're just kind of choosing these, you know, path choices that you take. Um, and, but I think Monkey Island was where you know we really took that whole that whole thing, and it and it really and it really blossomed. In terms of you know Guybrush's personality, I mean, he's I mean he's a little bit full of himself, you know, obviously, and he's you know he can be a little bit sarcastic, and you know as long as things are kind of written in that vein. You know, I think you know. I was I was happy with them, but I think there was a lot of leeway to you know to push that. And 
because the player is choosing those lines, you know, it is a great opportunity to tell, you know, four jokes at once. You know, you can play a little bit with, you know, do you want him really, you know, schmarmy? Do you want him really right. sarcastic? Or do you want him to actually be a little bit serious about this situation? And I think, like, your mission statement is clear in the beginning when you can tell the pirates that you want to kill them all and the game doesn't, you know, explode Guybrush on the spot or have the pirates shoot him or whatever. Just, like, you can get away with this in this game. You can be this jerk if you want to. We're not going to punish you, which I really like. I think any other game at the time would be like, oh, no, you, you said the wrong thing at the wrong time, therefore you're dead. So Yeah, yeah it's, not a, it's not about choosing the right thing or the wrong thing. Right. right? It's not about uh, – adventure games to me are not about winning or losing. Right? It's, not, it's not that I've lost Monkey Island or I've won Monkey Island. It's just that you've played Monkey Island. Right. You've experienced Monkey Island. <laughs> and if you want to do things like say you're going to kill everybody or you or you're, you want to insult somebody in you know such a way that normally they might you know stab you with a sword or you know whatever it's like go ahead and do that because that's that's just a part of experiencing that i guess the and, worst guybrush has is uh, humiliation as his punishment in the game oh right oh i was just saying I, on a related note to your your, your bob you're going into Guybrush's personality. I'm curious, Ron. You know, we don't want to get too much into the Monkey Island games you didn't make, but what what did you think of of Dominic Armado being cast uh, in Curse as as the voice of him? Did you do you like his him as the voice, or is it one of those things where it's like Calvin and Hobbes, like a comic strip where you just think everybody he shouldn't have a voice because everybody has their own idea of what he sounds like? I you know I like I like the voice acting of Guybrush you know I I I thought it was very good and you know if I were ever to do you know another Monkey Island I would certainly ask him to do the voice cool. I mean there would be no question mm-hmm. about that in my mind but you know when I was making Monkey Island, Monkey Island two there was just no dream of ever having voice in games. Right. right. That was pure witchcraft. <laughs> so it's not like I kept imagining this voice. Like when I do a game now and I'm writing a character or creating a character, I do imagine a voice in my head. Mm. You know, I, I, you know, I think of different actors or different characters in movies and I, and I, and I put those voices in them because I know at some point this character is going to be voice acted. And so you have to think about that. But with Monkey Island, Monkey Island 2, I had just no idea what his voice was. I mean, I suppose it's like, you know, asking the author of a novel. They right. they probably don't imagine that mm. that voice. So, you know, it's not like, you know, when I heard Guy Vash speak for the first time, I said, oh, that's that's not the way I had imagined <laughs> his voice. It's like, oh, that's, yeah, okay, that's pretty good. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I interviewed Dominic Armato years ago, and he auditioned for the role because he was a super fan uh, yeah, of your Monkey Island game. So I hope he hears this and hears that you would call him if there were ever another Ron Gilbert game. Yeah, because that all happened after I had left. So yeah. I had, you know, I had nothing to do with, uh, you know, with the casting and the voicing right. of that stuff. So one of the things I feel is a kind of a holdover from older adventure games is the fact that Monkey Island 1 and 2, they have mazes in them. Uh, and there's also a maze in Tales of Monkey Island. And I'm just curious, like, are you still – do you still think it's like a, a viable kind of puzzle in an adventure game, the maze? Not to ask too much about Thimbleweed Park. <laughs> uh, God, you know – I, I love mazes. Mm. I mean, I don't know that they that they are an integral part of adventure games. They certainly have an, an historical part of them. If you go all the way back to you know adventure, oh, you yeah. know, on the mainframe computers, you know, they were you know a twisty you know passage they all look alike type stuff. So the, I think they have this historical significance in those games. But 
I do, you know, and I also, I also like, I like mazes. What, what I don't like is I don't being, I don't like being lost in mazes. Right. And mm-hmm. you know, even in in Monkey One, the two, you know, kind of air quote mazes that we had really weren't mazes. We didn't. You know, expect you to find your way through them. It was it was a puzzle that right, got you yeah. through the maze. You know, it was it was finding the map and following the map. Right. You know, or it was following the head of the navigator. And there was actually, you know, no way to get through those mazes without those devices. I mean, you could fumble your way through, but but a lot of times they 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 were kind of they were faked up in a way. They weren't real. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess that makes it maybe a little bit okay for me because it's not really a maze. You're, you're solving this other puzzle that sits at a higher level to get through the maze. So there's been several versions of this game released over the years. The first Monkey Island. We'll move on, we'll move on to Monkey Island too soon. But um, what is your favorite version? And um, yeah, I'm just curious. Like, what is is it still the original uh, release or? I think my favorite version is the the VGA version of, mm. of Monkey One. Okay. The the EGA one, uh, you know, Mark Ferrari did all of the art in that, and you know, he's a he's a brilliant artist, and you know, he, but he he was very limited to these sixteen EGA colors. Was the EGA version first, or yes, okay. the, the EGA version came out, and then the VGA version uh, was made maybe a year later. Oh wow, I didn't know there was that much of a, a time. Yeah, yeah, there there was quite a bit of gap because the re-release version of Monkey One used all of the Monkey Two. Technology. Oh wow! Okay, which was why which was why it was released, Got and it. a lot of the art was was redone. But the reason that I like the um, the VGA version is is really the inventory icons. Oh, that's right. That was a change. Um, yeah, because they, they were yeah. all they were all text during the original EGA one, and so I kind of I enjoy the art that existed in the EGA version. You know, Mark Ferrari's beautiful art, right. but I actually like the icons uh, Those are in the cool. UI. Very cool. What did you think then of the the uh, PC and console re-releases that the that LucasArts did? And oh, that must have been I think it was 2009, if I remember correctly. The you know the, that yeah. art that that redone art was controversial amongst fans, and then the S- Monkey Island Two S- special edition remake they did gave you the option to you could play the VGA graphics, but with the voice cast on top. What, what did you think of those? I was not a huge fan of the art yeah. in, those, in those games, but I was uh, – I really liked that you could switch because yeah. when I play the special editions now, it's because of the voice. I, I play them in the old you know, bitmap right. DGA graphics, but I do it with the voice. And you could actually do – I mean somebody had done a hack on the, on first the Monkey one, Island right? 1 yeah. where you could yeah, play it with the okay. voice and, and that I, I really enjoy. Actually – it's it's odd how used to voice I have become over the years that you don't – you miss it. I think I miss it in games when mm. it's not there. It just seems or, lonely without or it, it maybe? I, I don't know what it is. Mm. I don't know what it is. Or or it's, it's – um, you know, it's during, during Monkey 1 because I was replaying uh, Monkey Island 2 uh, recently with my girlfriend who had never played Monkey Island 2 before. She had played 1 but she never played 2 before. And so we sat down and we were just playing it and I was just kind of watching her and you know, maybe 20 minutes into the game, it just kind of dawned on me, oh, Guybrush is talking. <laughs> I just – I didn't even notice that he was actually speaking all yeah. this stuff because I just expect it to happen now uh, in games. Boy, and I, I could never do that. Like that, that, that is like the most pro move ever. <laughs> hey, you want to – 
play my game, I totally made this it's legendary. <laughs> yeah. It's beloved by everyone. Were you yeah, her, give it a try. Um, were you her 1-800-STAR Wars or 1-800-STAR Wars? No, I, you know, one of the things that I have learned to do over the years is I can sit and watch somebody play my games in utter silence. Mm. Because I'm used to doing that when we do the play testing, right. which is very different than focus testing. A lot of people get those two things confused. Mm-hmm. But when we're doing play testing, I like to watch people play the game, and I like to just sit there completely silent and 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 watch them struggle. Because I think <laughs> I, I think that's really really important. Because if if you if you're watching somebody struggle playing your game and they're really struggling at it. If you just kind of endure through all of the struggling, you feel their pain in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes you go, okay, you know what? I'm going to change this puzzle because it was really painful for me to sit here in silence for 20 minutes while they struggled with something I thought was going to be easy. So good game designers have empathy is what you're saying. They 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 need it, yeah, because it's really easy to – uh, you know, if you're watching somebody play the game and they get stuck, and then you just kind of interject, you know, oh, use the use the hamster in the mm. you know, in the toilet, you know, and they go, oh, okay, and they do it, and then you think, oh, well, that was an easy, but well, that was an easy puzzle, and it was only easy because you told them, yeah, yeah. you know, what to do on the thing. So, I think during play testing, it's really important to experience those those painful moments that the players are having. So, are you not a fan of the the blood blorns and the dark souls of the day, who's job it is to sort of torture you from a gameplay perspective? I, I don't personally enjoy those games, but I, I understand why some people do. And yeah. I think for certain types of games, I think that's really, really good. Uh, you know, if it is you know, more of kind of a, I don't want to say platformer, it's more of a platformer mechanic. There are platformers I do enjoy where I'm just kind of pounding my head against this yeah. thing, you know, dying, restarting, dying, restarting. I, I do enjoy that, but not in an adventure game because mm-hmm. adventure games to me are about the stories and right. the characters. and. Agreed. It's not about that endlessly dying. So we're back, and uh, I want to talk about uh, Monkey Island 2, LeChuck's Revenge. There's no more secret anymore, I guess, uh, in, in the series. But um, I want to know, like, it seemed like LucasArts was not a sequel company until this point, and this was the next game they made. Was Monkey Island that big of a hit that it was immediately like, we want to make a sequel, I have an idea? I'm just curious, like, what inspired the sequel process? With Monkey Island 2. Well, it certainly wasn't because Monkey Island was a hit Mm. because for a couple of reasons. Uh, Monkey Island 2 was started just like two weeks after Monkey Island Mm. 1 finished. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean I I finished Monkey Island 1 and I went on vacation for two weeks and then I started Monkey Island 2 Mm. just immediately. And back then – you know, we didn't even know whether Monkey Island one had sold right. at right. that point, right? That's just too fast. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't in the channels. There was no, you know, internet to, you know, see what fan feedback Thank was. God. <laughs> <laughs> you were just you were in you the were dark. Yeah. You were just completely in the dark on that stuff. 
Um, but, you know, McAllen 1 really wasn't a big hit. Mm. I mean, a lot of people think that that game was this big, giant hit, but it really wasn't. Sierra was still, you know, kicking our ass, mm. you know, up and down with the sales on us. And it, and it was very frustrating, you know, to see that game and, and to see – you know what it did because you know I think everybody at Lucasfilm Games knew it was a really good game and really liked it, but it just it wasn't it wasn't selling that well. Mm. And, I, and it really wasn't it wasn't until years later that I think that game just kind of caught and you know captured people's imaginations. But it was never a huge seller. So why then did a sequel go into production so much s- without that knowledge? I mean, did you have an idea? Um, was it just an easy game to make with the technology at the time? Um, Better to ask forgiveness than yeah. permission? I think it was, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, at the time, Lucasfilm Games was kind of like Lord of the Flies. <laughs> <laughs> and we, you know, we didn't, we just, we just kind of ran around and did whatever you had we the wanted shell to then, we wanted do. Yeah. And so, you know, it just, it, it kind of got made. And I, I don't really remember, I just, in my mind, well, of course, there's going to be a Monkey Island too. You know, I had always envisioned it as this three game trilogy thing, and so there was, of course, there was going to be a Monkey Island too. Let's let's go. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, there wasn't. I don't. I don't know that there was a lot of analysis about whether you know Monkey Island two was the right game to be doing uh, next or not. Hmm. That's interesting. I had always assumed that Monkey Island one was big, and let's do another one. But that, that's pretty cool. Like that sounds like a lot of freedom, really. Yeah, there was a huge amount of freedom. I, at the time, I don't believe that any of us understood how great that was. Hmm. They were, how, they were the Valve before that the, before there was Valve. Yeah, wow. very much so. <laughs> so I have to talk about the music in this game, uh, even though Ron didn't write the music. But um, uh, three composers: Michael Land, uh, Clint. I can never say his name. Back, back a... I could never say his okay. name either. Clint B. <laughs> and uh, Peter McConnell uh, right. all contributed to this amazing soundtrack. They also did uh, Day of the Tentacle, I believe. And um, it, it made the most use of the iMuse system in a way that feels like an evolutionary dead end. Um, where uh, I, I bring this up on a billion podcasts, so please excuse me, but Ron Gilbert's here, so I have to. Uh, <laughs> Wood Tick, you walk through this village. Every new character you meet... Uh, as you go into their area, the music changes. It doesn't fade in and out of different uh, versions of that song. It kind of very, very neatly just transitions to that, like, musically. And I'm wondering, like, how did you feel about this? Did you want this in everything? Like, like what was what effect did it have on you, this iMuse system? I know it was in earlier games, but here it feels like it was, like, just the best it's ever been used before. Yeah, I think Monkey Island 2 was actually the first game oh, that really? I used. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Monkey Island 2 was the first game that I used, was used on because Michael Land was developing that system. He had done, Got it. He'd done the music for Monkey 1, but that was just kind of, you know, fire and forget music, you know, start the music, stop the music type stuff. And, you know, he'd, he'd, built, he'd built the iMuse system and we were, you know, lucky enough to be the first game to try it out on. And... He really had a lot of autonomy in that music. Mm. He he had a vision. You know, my, Michael Land was absolutely a brilliant guy, and and you know because he did a, a lot of the composing. He also did all the programming. You know, wow. for iMuse, so right. So he's you know churning away in assembly language while he's <laughs> composing. Yeah. You know, this music is just he's a genius, and he had a he had a vision for how all of this worked, and I was just happy to just let him have his vision. You know, I knew. I knew kind of the general style of the music because it it had come from Monkey Wand, you know, that kind of you know Caribbean Calypso type type feel, and I knew that Monkey Island Two needed to have the same thing, 
But after that, it's like he could do what he wanted to do. I, I completely trusted him mm-hmm. to do stuff with the music. I mean, even without that technically impressive aspect, it's still an amazing soundtrack. And I know they couldn't replicate the iMuse aspect of it for the special edition, but those um, live recordings of that music, is it, it's some of the best game music I think ever. I'm not sure how you felt about the remixes or the, the reinterpretations of that in the special edition. Did you enjoy those at all? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, I think it's wonderful yeah. music. Yeah. It's great I stuff. Mean, all, all those guys did an amazing job with that music. So this, uh, and Ryan brought it up earlier, this game has uh, difficulty levels, two of them. One is for game reviewers, one is for regular people, I guess. Uh, but I'm just curious, like, did that... Okay, throw a monkey wrench into your design docs or anything. I'm sorry. You're bring and it, I'm you're leaving. Gonna, you're going to bring up that puzzle, yeah. right? Uh, no, I won't. I Believe me. Um, I, had, I had to at least say monkey wrench. But, like, how, how much did that complicate um, your design? Or was it just something that was easy to graft on these extra steps into the puzzles themselves? It was really easy to do mm, okay. because we did the exact opposite yeah, you took of away, that. I we would took suspect, away, I took away steps. Oh, okay, cool. So the game was designed with hard mode from the beginning. So the entire game was done. Then, uh, you know, we went through and we pre-solved puzzles. <laughs> so, so if there's some – I'm going to use a bad example. But if there's, you know, a, a lock that you need, you know, a key to get into and it's kind of an elaborate process to get the key, we just didn't lock the door. Hmm. So that whole puzzle chain was pre-solved and, and it's just a matter of going through and picking, you know, just not, not even a lot because, I mean, some of the puzzle chains, you know, you'd, five, you'd solve like five, six, ten puzzles to get up to it. And if we just pre-solved that one puzzle, that whole chain just vanished as being necessary. So we really didn't have to pick very many spots in the game. It was just about getting the right spots so the, so the flow and the pacing still felt right because you didn't want one section to be abnormally short because you'd clipped away some puzzle chains. Right. I assume the scum system made those kind of changes easy to make on the fly. And just like the way you describe these games, like if you had a good idea, it was easy to plug into the, the scripting language that you made for these games. Yeah, he wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, there were, there are a couple of different levels to why that, that was really good was, you know, first of all, you know, we could all go out and have lunch and we could, think of something really funny and come back and it would be in the game that afternoon mm. because it was just easy it was easy to do that kind of stuff and so that was it's you know I've often described it almost as improv game design mm. right you it's it's not about creating a big thick document with every puzzle laid out and then just going off and implementing them it's about having this rough structure and then just you know quickly feeling your way through the game and deciding, well, you know, is this does this feel good? Is this short enough? Is this long enough? And 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 that that's the kind of game design I really like. I do not work well if I have to create big, large documents. I like to create small documents and then start making it, and then just kind of adjust as I go. And things like the Scum system, you know, really helped for that because it was very quick to change and implement stuff. The Curb Your Enthusiasm School of Game Design. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we have to kind of close the book on Monkey Island too because I do want to talk about your new project, but I guess we have to talk about the ending. And I don't know if you plan on leaving LucasArts at this point. Uh, maybe you did, but was the ending written so no one else could touch the game or did you leave that little window open at the end so there could possibly be another Monkey Island without you. I'm just curious as to, I don't want to know the meaning of the ending because I know that you that's something you won't answer, but just what your intentions were, I would like to know. Well, I did not know. I didn't know that I was leaving LucasArts at the end of Monkey Island 2. So that ending has nothing to do with the fact okay. that I left after the game. 
I think that that ending is mostly um, a product of I didn't have an ending for the game. I see. <laughs> I had I had no ending for that game. Well, I was because I was going to ask as a follow up. You, you mentioned earlier originally envisioning it as this trilogy, three games. So I was curious if you had a definitive. Okay, well, I'm going to end the first game here and end the second no, game here. I, I actually had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> It was it, it was it was it was just a case where I kind of vaguely knew what I wanted to do, but I really didn't understand the ending at that point, and mm-hmm. I just I kept putting it off. I just oh we'll figure out that later, we'll figure out that later, we'll figure out that later, and you know I it, it was really kind of a product of panic more than it huh. was anything else. It was a product of like we're really getting close to the end of this game, and I really do not have mm-hmm. an ending, and then. One day, literally laying in bed on a Saturday morning, it just kind of hit me. It's like, oh, I think I know. I think I know how this has to end with that. So I, I played this game after I played Monkey Three first because I didn't get a computer until Monkey Three was released. So I kind of played them out of order. I played three, then one, then two. And so when you I, had no idea why Monkey Island Three starts with you floating in a bumper car. Not really, even though they tried to explain oh, their well, way out. Sorry, of it. curse of Monkey Island. Yeah. There is no Monkey Island. That's right. Oh, sorry. My apologies. I screwed wrong. up too. But um. I was not privy to the, I guess, controversy where it was assumed that, like, oh, it was all a dream and there'll be no more Monkey Island. But then there was more Monkey Island. Uh, can you let us in on, like, the reception to that? Was it was it as, um, as ang- like, anger-inducing as the Internet has led me to believe the uh, over Monkey Island 2's ending? Yeah, it, re- it really was. Uh, I think that was an ending that you, you either loved or you hated it. I don't think there was any middle ground with that ending, right? You didn't think the ending of Monkey Island was, ah, it was okay. Right, it's yeah. like you either hated yeah, it with a vengeance, or yeah. you completely loved it. And I, I knew that when when you know I knew that with, I knew that was going to happen with the ending, or I should say I hoped that was going to happen with mm. the ending. Right? I think I think things things that things that everybody likes are boring. Right? Things that half the people love and half the people hate those are interesting. Right? Because you're, you're obviously you know, poking people in the right way, right? You're not you're not poking people just to be mean. Otherwise, everyone would hate it. But if you know, you get this nice balance of half the people hating and half the people loving it. I think creatively, that's that's a really good and interesting thing. And I knew that ending was going to be a little bit controversial, and it was from day one. I mean, I actually I have a letter right now in my house that was written to me back. You know, after Monkey Island Two came out, of just a completely irate person about that. <laughs> now that ending. would be several tweets. Several yeah, thousand yeah. This was a hand. This yeah. was a handwritten letter. You know, wow. it, would be, it would be a manifesto from a crazy person these days <laughs> to actually write something like that on hand, and they just absolutely hated it. it. You know, we also got letters from people that that loved it, and. You know, at least a couple of years ago, I would, you know, get several emails a day wow. from people <laughs> – or a week, a week uh, – from people who, who were angry about that ending. Hmm. How do you feel about it today? I, I love the ending. I, I think it's an absolutely perfect ending for that, yeah. I, I love it because – just solely because I never saw it coming. Mm. And that's yeah. – the, the surprise definitely went, uh, gained a lot of points for me.
so we have to move on. Uh, we only have about 10 minutes left. I did want to bring Ron in here to talk about Thimbleweed Park. Even though it is a new game, it's also an old game. Uh, the Kickstarter pitch is imagine a LucasArts game that was never released or something along the lines of that. And I want to know what your intentions are with this game, Ron, and where would you place it on like the timeline of adventure games and what can we expect to be different that you maybe you have learned since then? I would I would put the timeline of that game as as a game that was after Maniac Mansion but before Monkey Island. Mm. That's, you know, in Carrie and I's heads, that was always, you know, where this game, you know, would probably uh, probably come out. But, uh, you know, I, I, like, I like to think the design of Thimbleweed Park is, like, fully modern, right? It, it, it learns all of the rules from the Monkey Island games and learns every lesson, you know, that we had learned, you know, from doing those Monkey Island games. So while it kind of, you know, predates Miguelan in some ways, it, it, it's all the lessons learned. Is it fair to call it maybe game. sort of an ideal version of a 1987 adventure game? Yeah, certainly. <laughs> I mean, there's no death in it. You know, there are no dead ends in right. it. It's, you know, fixes all of those problems. And, and there were also like a lot of things that I learned from building the humongous entertainment games for kids that I think are going to go into mm-hmm. that game and just a lot, how you design puzzles and how you direct people and how you focus players. Because you really, you have to direct and focus kids when they're doing that stuff and there were a lot of you know little tricks that we learned about those things and, and so a lot of that's going to come into play as well. So so when you say it's the midpoint between Maniac Mansion and Monkey Island, are you talking in terms of like presentation and technology, the like the parser? I'm I'm kind of curious what you mean by that. I mean in maybe the graphical style. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not as simple as simple as Maniac Mansion was, but it's probably not as elaborate as Monkey Island was, you know, in that sense. And you know, when I when I when I say in between, you know, it's just it's just something that kind of, you know, is running around in Gary and I's heads. It's like we have to kind of plop it in a time frame because mm-hmm. that just makes us be able to make a lot of other decisions. Mm-hmm. And right. that's kind of the time frame that we've plopped it into is is post maniac but pre monkey. So working uh, without a publisher uh, independently with uh, Gary Winnick, correct? Correct. And uh, even David Fox is uh, chipping in on this, I read. Yeah, he's doing some game programming. Um, How different is that from working with Double Fine and and LucasArts? I mean, is this your ideal situation? Uh, Because I'm not sure if this game could have been made um, through a traditional publisher. You know, it's it's all very different. You know, I think publishers uh, definitely have their place. Um, they give, they bring money, which is really nice. Um, but you know, Kickstarters also bring money, right? So you know, backing your game on Kickstarter, I think publishers do uh, or can bring um, a little bit of sense of of you know organization, right? They they are this big thing that's kind of you know forcing you to to maybe make better decisions about stuff or more, more thought out decisions. It's, it's very easy for a game to go completely off track if nobody's watching you. Hmm. You know, you can just get completely caught up in your own, your own, um, you know, a sense of, of, of what this thing could be or your kind of artistic vision for this game and all those things. And if, and if nobody's writing that whip, things can go off the rails very easily. And and I think that is one thing that publishers do bring, right? They are they are cracking the whip and yeah. they can do that. As, as as long as the publisher kind of understands that there is this artistic component to what they're doing, you know, a good publisher will understand that. So and I and I do enjoy that. I like I like having deadlines. I like knowing I need to get this done by a certain date. It doesn't mean I'm gonna hit that date. <laughs> I'm, you know, I may miss that date for a little bit. But if I have no date, then I just like 
I just go screw off all the time. Yeah, reading so. reading your blog, you are very deadline focused. You're like, here's what I want to have happen by this date, and here's where we are now, and you're just very very open. And I'm curious, like. How do you feel about sharing so much of the development process with fans? Um, because it's very uh, transparent what both you and Gary and David are doing at almost every step of the way. Like, uh, I- I'm sure that you are comfortable because you're doing this. But, like, can you explain, like, what that does to the development process itself? Yeah, just because I'm doing it doesn't mean I'm comfortable okay. with it. <laughs> I mean, I don't feel like you're obligated, but it's very kind of you. To well, if you, I mean, in. maybe you do feel obligated because it's Kickstarter. Yeah. And there's this sort of this expectation, maybe. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a very private person and I don't, I don't like to share a lot of stuff. You know, in my, like I had mentioned, you mentioned that tweet where I said, you know, I, I would love to be able to make Monkey on 3 and never tell anybody about it and just release it one day. And that in some ways that would be a dream of mine, right? I would love to build that game, get it completely done, put it up on Steam and never tell anybody oh, about it. The best. And just like watch as people maybe discover, you know. Yeah. I think I think that you know that would be a lot of fun and that would be very, you know, interesting to do. So I'm not I'm not the kind of person that just likes to share everything I'm doing. So uh, with the Thimble Week Park blog, I do feel a little obligated to do that because of the Kickstarter. You know, because we had all these people that had backed and given us, you know, money and you know, you have a lot of Kickstarters that, you know, never see the light of day or go dark and you never hear from them again. And I just felt like, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I'm just going to share everything, mm. you know, short of spoilers for the game. I'm just going to share everything that's going on uh, with this. And it's a lot of work, you know. We do we do two or three blog posts a week plus we have the podcast that we do and it's an amazing amount of time you know to do all of this stuff but you know so far i think it's fun but you know the the project has not hit a wall yet right we're still in these kind of you know fun phases of the project where everything's new and wonderful nine months from now when everything's (laughs) gone to hell (laughs) we'll see how fun it is so um we only have a few minutes left i I did want to know where did this idea come from? Was this something that you had kicking around since the LucasArts days, or is this a newer idea, or maybe these are ideas that are coming piecemeal from different projects you worked on or different things that never took off at previous publishers? Yeah, it's it's a fairly new idea, okay. and, it, and it, it stems, I guess, maybe four or five months before we did the Kickstarter. Gary and I were just reminiscing you know, about how fun it was back then at Lucasfilm and making those games and making Maniac Mansion uh, together because we've never we've never worked together since Maniac Mansion. Oh, wow. So it, we were just kind of doing that, and, and I just kind of mentioned, you know, hey, let's let's make another one and do it on Kickstarter. And we both kind of laughed about it. Yeah, oh, that's really funny. That's a joke. And then there was this awkward silence where, like, hey, maybe we should do that. <laughs> so, and you know, so then we then we sat down and we started to figure out, okay, so we're going to do this classic point-and-click adventure game. It's going to feel like those old games. It's going to have the verb interface. I mean, it really is going to be like that. Then we just went through about a month-long process of just brainstorming a lot of ideas about what the story is and what the world is and what the characters are. Are you you following the Monkey Island 1 curb your enthusiasm design philosophy? Or is this game all papered out and you're just now building it? Uh, I... there's there's a lot of there's like a lot of that impromptu design. I think I think I'm a little bit better about figuring out all the puzzle dependency charts earlier, just because I understand how much work that stuff is 
to kind of change. So right. I don't I don't want to do it like as improv as those things were done, but there still is a lot of stuff. Like I I have not written any of the dialogue for the game yet, and I don't really plan on writing any of the dialogue until the puzzles are in and working. Mm. So a lot of that I think is going to be very you know natural as it, as it flows out, and you know will change a lot. So I have all the puzzle dependency charts, but I don't have a big thick design document. Well, Ron, thanks for coming in. And we usually can do- I crowbar in one more oh, question if Ron wants to stay. One more question, Ron. Sure, I'd go be ahead. remiss. You're here. Uh, well, there's trail mix sitting yeah. here on the table. Well, you know, so. that's what it takes. I thought for sure once LucasArts decided to more or less get out of the games business that we'd seen the last of Monkey Island or any of those games. But uh, we've seen Sony step up and go to bat for Double Fine and get, uh, you know, talk to Disney and get, we've seen Grim Fandango remastered and we've seen now they're working on Day of the Tentacle Special Edition. Uh, do you or your lawyer, your people, have you have you picked up the phone to call, uh, you know, a Disney or, or reach out to see if if Monkey Island is, is something they'd be willing to, to uh, work with you on? Well, with, with Monkey Island, I really am only interested in one thing, right. and that's buying the rights back. Mm. I don't want to do a publishing deal. Got I it. don't want to do a new game with Disney in charge or Sony or anyone else right. in charge. If I do another Monkey Island, it's because I own the IP. I want to get that back. And if I can get that back, I would love to make a new one. But I, I need to have absolute and complete control over it because if I made another Monkey Island, it would look a lot like Monkey Island 2. It would have the verb interface. It would, you know, be that old school graphics. It would have all of those sensibilities. No one is going to green light that project ever, even, so, even, even for something like Monkey Island. So have you called? Have you picked up the phone? And also what can we as fans do to help pressure Disney into letting the IP go? Because they're not going to do anything with it. Yeah, I, 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 I really have no idea. Mm-hmm. I, I have no idea. I mean, they, they, they are not – I can tell you this: they are not interested in selling those IPs. That is yeah. unfortunate. It doesn't really let go of things. <laughs> yeah, it is not a matter of you know, ooh, let's do a Kickstarter. You know, yay, we'll do a Kickstarter and get it back. You know, if if they don't want to sell it, and certainly they're not short of money, right? So you know, doing a five million or even a ten million dollar Kickstarter probably isn't. So going all to I can them. do is somehow become the president <laughs> of Disney, and then. Sell it back to you for a song. That sounds about like a only. good plan. Let's better, go. With that. start now. I'm going to get on. Let's that. go with that. So, Ron, thank you so much for coming in again. Uh, it was a great conversation we had. And uh, go play Monkey Island if you haven't, and check out your new game. And um, I want to say uh, we usually do plugs around the table, but since you have to leave, uh, please let us know what you're working on and how people can contribute or follow it or you know keep up with Thimbleweed Park. Yeah, just go to thimbleweedpark.com. And everything's there. The dev blog is there. And if you want to support the project, there's a little support us link. And you can, uh, you know, continue back the game and get wonderful, you know, rewards and stuff for that. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait Great. to play it in uh, 2017, right? Or 2016. 2016. Okay. I don't want well, to say it. Well, it could be 2017. Okay. But well, <laughs> <laughs> it's 2016 as of this recording. So don't hold us to that. So now that Ron's gone, we can tell what we really think about him. I think he's a great guy. Oh my god, I love, I love that guy so much. <laughs> he's he's great. It's it's yeah. clear he's got very not only so much experience, but he has so many I, philosophies and ideas about game design. You could we could talk to him for four hours just yeah. on just on 
games that aren't his, just on game design philosophy, how games are now compared to how games are when we were kids, and oh, he's 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 great. I will yeah, say, go I, to his blog, I Grumpy Gamer. Um, he didn't mention that, but he writes a lot about game design there. He was decidedly yeah, I, not grumpy today. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he is grumpy, really. <laughs> That's a misnomer. Uh, Jeremy? I was just going to say, I haven't played many of his games, just Maniac Mansion, really, but I've read a lot of what he's written. And yeah. his, his thoughts on game design are very valuable. Yeah, he's got a lot to say. As for us, we have a lot to say. We're not as impressive as Ron Gilbert, but you can read my stuff at US Gamer and Something Awful and follow me on Twitter as Bob Servo. Ryan, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, this was, uh, I'm sorry I cut it super close oh, no. on the notice, but uh, we're just in time. So really happy I was yeah. able to get here. You, get, you can find me over on IGN.com. Uh, I host Podcast Unlocked, which is IGN's Xbox centric podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at DMC underscore Ryan. And Jeremy. Uh, hi, I'm Jeremy. Um, let's see, where can you find me? Hmm, Twitter, I'm GameSpite. I write for usgamer.net. I write blogs and stuff other places. Yeah, that's that's good. That's, and the, that's the abstract. <laughs> I didn't do the spiel, but I'll do it. Uh, you can find us on everything as Retronauts. Uh, we're on Patreon, patreon.com slash retronauts. A buck a month, that's all we ask from you. Helps keep the show going, helps fly Jeremy out here, helps us buy and replace equipment. It's a really great deal for us, and we really appreciate it if you do it. And that's it for this week. Please tune in next week for a brand new micro episode. See you later, guys.